positive feedback loop. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Positive Feedback Loop podcast, where we talk about a variety of things, including culture, technology, history, and we try to learn a lot about how we think about these things and how people think about things in general. And today we have a very special guest. Uh, His name is Jeffrey Parker. He's a professor at Dartmouth College, a research fellow and visiting scholar at MIT. And uh, he actually wrote the book on platform technology. It's called Platform Revolution, How Network Markets Are Transforming the Economy and How to Make Them Work for You. So welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you for joining us. Great. It's uh, Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, Jeff, it's great to have you. We feel really lucky. Um, we're very excited for you to be here. Yeah, but I forgot to actually introduce my co-hosts. <laughs> this is Stephanie Leachman. Yeah, so Stephanie here. And Luis. Luis, thank you. So, um, first question I had for you, Jeffrey, was, you know, how did you get into this platform world? What what got you interested? Oh, boy. So, you really have to go back to the beginning of the story. So, first, I've always been interested in technology. And if, if you look in the background, uh, you'll see that I was in a business school for the majority of my career, 18 years. And then, just this past summer, I joined Dartmouth as a professor of engineering which may seem like an unusual transition, but it actually made a lot of sense to me and and happily a lot of sense to them. So I direct our Master of Engineering Management program, which is a joint venture between the Tuck School of Business here and then the um, the Thayer School of Engineering. And personally, I've always been interested in technology. So I was uh, one of those geeks that used to put antennas in their backyard and do ham radios um, and got interested in kind of the business aspects of things majored in electrical engineering, but minored in economics. Uh, went to work for GE as a semiconductor device engineer and ended up in GE finance. Thought I was never going to see the inside of a classroom, but somehow ended up in the engineering school at MIT and then wandered over to the business school. And you, you, know, you should get the idea. I really like living right on that, that line between understanding technology but also understanding the economics uh, and the business models and sort of how things are happening. And I think there's a lot of power at that intersection because especially now with the rapid growth of businesses that depend on data and depend on sort of aggregating massive amounts of information and coordinating the actions of large numbers of users, the technology that makes that possible is also partly what has to inform the economics and sort of the understanding of of how you invest in these things, how you build them, how you price them, how you might regulate them. So just watching this incredible change in the economy unfold and over the last really couple of decades has been a a treat. In in sort of the, the, the specifics, you might almost say, and it really came from one of your your professors, my, my good friend and co-author and colleague, Marshall Van Alstyne, and I used to, to kind of meet and talk about how the internet was growing really quickly and what were all these wacky free business models that we were seeing, and this was in the 90s. Wow. And in order to really precisely answer those questions, we had to, to do some refinements to 
kind of theoretical models of network effects and say, well, if you're really going to explain how it makes sense to give away goods for free, you really have to refine those models and talk about cross-site network effects where you can then understand what otherwise otherwise might be some puzzling price behavior. So I guess we really got into this in the late 90s um, when Marshall and I were, were new faculty members. Um, and then I think that at the time we were looking at you know, some big companies like Apple and Microsoft, but also you know, smaller firms. And what's happened is there's just been explosive growth in that sector of the economy. So I think we were pretty fortunate um, to have done some, some thinking about what was driving the change in the economy pretty early on. You're a perfect person to talk about these topics uh, just because you've spent your life's work on it. And so we have some follow-up questions for our listeners who haven't taken a class on platforms. If you could briefly describe how you teach what a platform is and what network effects are. Yeah, so Lewis and Stephanie and Ray have, have the good fortune of being in, uh, in Marshall's uh, platform strategy class. And that class is what drove us to write the book Platform Revolution because there was no way we were going to reach as many people just teaching, you know, face to face, which we love doing. Um, but we thought that this topic was was more important and really deserved a broader audience. So when we talk about a platform in particular, we think of um, a set of, of kind of reusable building blocks. Um, those can be technology, but they can also be contracts. They can be financial standards. And those reusable building blocks um, help users, producers, create things of value. And they can potentially help uh, demand-side users, consumers, consume things of value. Uh, and then you also have the ability to do search and matching to try to get the demand side and the supply side together to create the the most valuable matches. And so that's at one level what a what a platform does. And then your next question you asked was about kind of network effects. And what's really interesting and in driving the growth of many of these systems is that the interactions become more valuable as more people join the system because that um, both increases the system's ability to do matching because it learns, you know, what people want. And then it also means that there's kind of more content available or there's more, there are more services available or more products. And so people would want to come and affiliate with the system in order to, to participate in and consume those products and services. And the defining characteristic, it sounds like, of, of these platforms is that there are multiple sides. And it doesn't necessarily need to be two-sided, but that there are these sides that need each other in some way. And they do the, the interactions between those sides happen through the platform, not off the platform. And, and in fact, it doesn't even have to be just two sides. Right. I mean, you have platforms that have many different actors from many different interests all kind of cooperating, even though not necessarily that's their goal. It's just, even if that goal is just to make profit. Right. You raise a really good point because a lot of the early economic modeling was done with two sides. And, and that's partly because 
they were done very formally and it's difficult to include more actors and still get a really well-defined formal model. But of course, you can have multiple sides and, and kind of the classic in a lot of systems would be the advertiser group. So you might have supply side users, you might have demand side users, and then you might have advertisers come in. And you know they want to attach to the network as well. They greatly value the consumer's presence. The consumers may like the ads, they may not. So they may not value the advertisers, and that's something that the platform has to manage. Um, but you're absolutely right, you can get multiple sides. Oftentimes, platforms are tied to what people really commonly are now calling the sharing economy, in particular things like Uber, Airbnb. How do you kind of foresee the impact that this has on the way that we live our lives and the way that the economy is moving, at least in the foreseeable future? Um, so that's a great question, and I'll, I'll give you um, a couple of examples. So first, when we look at systems that have been described as a sharing economy, of course what we really see is a platform that's matching um, potentially um, similar groups or, or different types of groups, and, and often people who have spare capacity, either in capital equipment like an automobile or a home or an apartment, or of time, like an Uber driver, um, and then people who need who are interested in consuming services. So once you conceptualize them that way, you would see a platform as the broader phenomenon, and then sort of the sharing platforms as specific types within that broader group. And then your question was, how do you see that impacting our lives going forward? And if, if you look again at the, the sharing examples that you gave Uber and Airbnb, they're really interesting because they're exactly systems where there's kind of spare capacity that would otherwise have a difficult time coming to market. Um, so take the Airbnb example um, specifically. So people might have you know properties that they don't use very often, but Prior to the arrival of Airbnb, they might have been dependent upon something like Craigslist, and you, know, you wouldn't necessarily know who you were doing business with. And so you'd have had to expend some effort in doing background checks and otherwise vetting a potential um, short-term renter. So the, the kind of amazing thing that Airbnb has done is through both peer evaluations, and that's you know essentially a reputation and rating system, and other kind of machine learning algorithms, you know they've they've been able to work out the likelihood of things gone wrong, and then take direct steps to to reduce those. It seems a um, lot like uh, Don Norman's design principles, where he talks about feedback and how. There's some yeah. sense of feedback that someone needs to get to know how their interactions in the pl platform are performing. And so you think of these rating systems as n not just the affordance of the platform itself, but those um, feedback mechanisms. And, and if you step back, what they're trying to do is create high-quality interactions between the users. And what they've accomplished is to reduce the transaction cost. So in the past, it would have been difficult you know, if I wanted to rent a, an apartment in Ho Chi Minh City or in Prague, yeah, it would have been very difficult for me to do that. So, of course, I would have 
instead been likely to work with a hotel. But there's spare capacity, it can come to market, and this system serves as the intermediary in the marketplace um, that allows the spare capacity to meet you know, potential demand. So that's an amazing kind of accomplishment. And the way that that happened was by reducing transaction costs so that it was possible to have that transaction take place. And then if you look at it that way, much of what the system is doing becomes very logical. And those feedback loops you just described are exactly that. They're designed to have better positive interactions and minimize the negative interactions. Man, that almost makes it sound easy. <laughs> there's been a lot of hype around the idea of these platforms emerging, and there's been a lot of attention towards making new ones. So what do you think of industries that may not be potentially good grounds for platforms to develop? What are some of the elements that you think need to exist for a platform to actually be successful? It's a great question. And we, we spent some time, especially at the end of the book, um, kind of theorizing around what factors have driven early um, traction for platforms and what are some things that prevent their growth. And early ones, industries that ha are primarily digital, so things like news, um, radio, television, uh, written word, uh, are easily delivered at low cost through digital systems. So that's sort of one prerequisite, things that don't have a lot of regulation. So you can enter the market without um, lots of kind of regulatory hurdles to overcome. Things where there might be uh, relatively large numbers of actors so that you could have a system that would aggregate smaller markets. Those are all places where you might expect to see platforms emerge. And then the flip side of that is an industry like, say, oil and gas, because I used to live in Louisiana. We, that was a big part of the economy there. Um, if you were going to put a system, an oil rig, out in the Gulf of Mexico, and it was going to be in, in many miles of water, and you were going to drill a well that might have to go down two miles before it hits the seashore, and then um, maybe go another five or six miles through the earth to find a, an oil deposit. And that's a 10-year process, and it could cost $10 billion. That's not the sort of thing where you sort of build common infrastructure and then hope that interesting things will happen. That's sort of standard supply chain. You know, we're going to have trusted partners. We're going to commit large amounts of capital. We'll only work with people with very strong balance sheets because... If something goes wrong, you know, we need to be able to withstand that. Um, those are the types of industries where you would expect uh, fewer platforms um, in terms of these digital systems to emerge. But the interesting thing is, even in an industry as capital intensive as oil and gas, uh, you might expect them to get impacted by the emergence of platforms. And so think about the Ubers and the Lyfts and then or, or Tesla or, or Google and their drive toward driverless cars. And if that actually ever gets traction, then you could imagine where the energy firms once faced a pretty sort of diffuse set of demand side participants, you know, people who are filling up their cars by themselves, 
they actually might see the emergence of much larger fleets. And then all of a sudden their markets are getting severely impacted by the emergence of platforms. So even if their own production technology isn't getting changed, certainly the way that they would um, sell their products could change dramatically. So that's that's pretty interesting. So, and kind of the punchline to that is it's hard to see an industry that doesn't need to be aware of what's happening and doesn't need to learn how this stuff works. Wow, that's that's pretty interesting. Uh, actually, uh, uh, we did have one just a uh, fun question for you. If you had to choose two people in history that you can watch them debate about any specific topic, who would they be and what would the topic be? So I might go all the way back to antiquity and, you know, meet with someone like Cicero. Mm, um, who was mm-hmm. Right there during such a time of tumult in Roman society and really functioned as an observer and try to learn kind of what were some of the drivers? How did people adapt? What were the forces that were driving such dramatic change? And uh, what were your observations? Yeah, that'd be fascinating. Interesting. We were thinking we would tie it up for this half and maybe in the second half we talk a little bit more about regulated markets and how platforms can try to infiltrate our work within the boundaries of the law and different difficult kind of industries. Uh, Okay. Two-sided markets are revolutionizing the way we do business. How will you keep up? Now available in print, audio, and ebook, and written by Jeffrey G. Parker, Marshall W. Van Alstyne, and Sangeet Paul Chowdhury, is the book Platform Revolution, How Networked Markets Are Transforming the Economy, and How to Make Them Work for You. The authors address topics such as network effects, monetization, governance, and strategy. Hal Varian, author of the well-known book Information Rules, calls it, quote, an authoritative guide to the role of online platforms. Ming Zheng, chief strategy officer of Alibaba, commends the authors for providing, quote, deep conceptual insights and rich practical advice on platforms, the most important business organization of our time. You can find Platform Revolution today in bookstores and online. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you very much. Uh, we are here with Jeff Parker, and we are continuing our conversation uh, about platforms. And the question is, how do how does regulation play into platforms, and how do you think the future of government will will look like? So that's a a, a great big question, um, which I couldn't possibly address comprehensively, but let's pick off a few pieces. Maybe we can focus on a specific existing example, like like Uber, because I know this is an issue that many people can relate to. Yeah, Uber or Airbnb are, are great examples of systems that you know, have, have in many ways operated outside current regulatory frameworks. And part of the reason for that is that the, the regulation was envisioned under one set of technologies. And the reality is these platforms and the ability to kind of coordinate supply and demand electronically with mobile devices have, have upended kind of existing industries. And the regulatory authorities are relatively slow to, uh, to catch up and adapt. 
you know, and 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 in some ways for good reason. You want a little bit of, of sort of time before you put new structures into place. So it's not necessarily a bad thing, uh, but what it does mean is some of these systems can operate in a legal gray zone um, or just be flat out illegal. And then you have to ask the question from the from society's point of view is, you know, do we want to tolerate that in order to get the benefits of innovation or are we going to be less tolerant of that or maybe we want to rework some of our regulation kind of in anticipation and allow for experiments to take place. And then once systems get big enough, then we would start to think more carefully about, you know, are they operating within the bounds of what we accept as citizens? And, you know, what, what sorts of things do we want to put in place, um, especially if we observe harm taking place? And you always have to worry about um, kind of incumbents and regulatory capture, where the regulations aren't necessarily in place to benefit the users or, or the consumers, but instead might end up benefiting kind of the, uh, the existing uh, firms or organizations. So you can get into some pretty interesting areas. Uh, you mentioned incumbents and how they deal with the regulatory environment. But what happens in the opposite situation where you have a company that's already large and growing and expanding worldwide, and they come across a country where they're trying to lock you out and foster their own competitors within, either oftentimes using some technology that might be even stolen, what kind of actions should a company take in terms of that? Should they try to still break into that market, or should they just try to strengthen their position abroad? Yeah, so that's a that's a fascinating um, point, and, and it's it's almost goes beyond what an individual company can do, and part of it gets to how how valuable is it to connect to a larger system and to have access to more data and to larger user bases. You know, especially for smaller countries, it could really be. Um, impossible for them to develop certain types of systems that depend on very large economies of scale or very large user bases to generate the data that they need to function effectively. So then you're into this kind of diplomacy question of, does it really make sense to kind of fragment the data? Because then all of the users won't benefit as much from access. you know, large countries, you know, such as India or China can can get away with that and still have big enough user bases that they can create powerful networks and sort of powerful companies. But, you know, smaller countries are unlikely to have the user base that they can really go it alone. And I think, you know, then the challenge is how do you respect their regulatory regimes and the goals of the, sort of their citizens um, and still operate? effectively. That's interesting. I'm thinking about how, you know, a few years down the line, maybe looking at driverless cars, you would really want to have the data from all the companies that are releasing autonomous vehicles so that it's just a safer environment uh, on the road, wouldn't you say? Because otherwise, it'd be like, you know, half of the cars are speaking to each other and the other half 
are divided and not speaking. Well, to and it's not even just speaking to one another, but if you think, especially in the transition period, what we've already learned is that the biggest cause of kind of accidents in autonomous vehicles is when the human drivers do something unexpected. And so those systems have to have enough observations of, of the humans doing strange and bizarre things um, that they can then start to have the, the machine learning and the algorithms to detect signs ahead of time in order to avoid accidents. Now, everything I just said means large sort of databases um, and large numbers of observations. So aggregation of data would be something that would be really helpful and beneficial in that, in, in that regard for safety. And the systems will learn faster as they have more information. In terms of government, when should a government legislate knowing that it has enough data to establish a technology such as driverless cars as safe? We all know that they are inherently safer than human drivers. Human drivers are far more unpredictable or erratic. But it's difficult to convince people to give up their power behind the wheel and trust a computer that could be hacked or could malfunction and could have a hundred other problems that humans may not feel comfortable around. So how do you know as a government when we have enough evidence to let go of that problem? Yeah, I don't. So I, there's not going to be a formulaic answer to that question. I think partly behavior changes. And so even the interest in automobile ownership among the sort of new drivers or citizens who could be drivers is much lower um, than a generation ago. So you're already starting to see intergenerational uh, change in attitudes um, toward technology and toward mobility. So I think over time, as more and more citizens get comfortable, even with things like Uber now, then autonomous vehicles is almost the next natural step. And then, you know, in terms of from the regulatory point of view, if you could get a factor of 10 improvement of safety, then, and you would have the evidence to support that and say, look, the autonomous vehicles are, are far less likely to be in sort of accidents that cause either death or, or you know, grievous harm. Um, it's that sort of data that you could marshal um, that would be pretty compelling. It sounds and, like there are two kind of sides to to trust and security then to platforms. One is the the one you're talking about with machine learning and artificial intelligence where we can actually start to see, detect anomalies or even prepare for them. And then the other side, kind of to bring it back to platform dynamics, is the idea that trust is almost crowdsourced. The fact that platforms are large, like Facebook being the size of, of full countries or even larger. Uh, how can trust really be crowdsourced in a sense that there are many people such such as with blockchain technologies, checking each other's work and, and preparing a, a trustworthy platform. And maybe um, that's where we can end is uh, this episode is just gathering your thoughts on those ideas of trust in, in large platforms. Yeah, that's, I mean, wow, what a, what a terrific um, topic. And your mentioning of, of blockchain, I think, is fascinating in this notion that that we can start to crowdsource trust and i guess one of the things that made bitcoin effective 
was that there were rewards to doing the computation that also served to certify the correctness of other participants in the system. In other words, to, to kind of decentralize the ability to trust. So one of the things that's got to be done is to correctly design the incentives. So it's not just altruism that would get one another to do whatever work is necessary to trust one another, but also that there might be some economic incentive so that we would be willing to do the work of auditing one another, you know, even in just little ways. And that's sort of down at the individual level using your your notion of crowdsourcing. But also at the platform level, we have the ability to aggregate lots of information and then do the detection of of sort of bad behavior or, or negative behavior as well as uh, sort of observing what works well and then perhaps designing mechanisms that try to encourage that. And then you said one thing, and I think we're really in early days of grappling with the security issues. And already we know that automobiles that are connected to networks um, can be hacked and you can you know, disengage you know, certain systems in cars that are actually rolling down the highway. So I think uh, I think the need to lock these things down is is quite high. And the sad thing is that, of course, there might be trade-offs in the rates of learning and the rates of innovation as, as we increase kind of friction because we've got to be convinced that they'll be secure. Um, but, you know, it won't take very many sort of catastrophes and negative incidents from hacking before people will insist upon it. So, you know, early days in this, but boy, things are, uh, things are very interesting. It's exciting times, absolutely. Well, thank you. We can wrap it up here. Again, I want everyone to uh, know where to find your book, Platform Revolution. Uh, it was actually listed as one of the top 16 books on the Forbes 2016 list. Uh, and I'm sure you're on Twitter and things. Would you like to tell the audience where they can find you and reach you? Sure. Easy to find. Uh, my Twitter is at G2, the numeral 2, Parker, P-A-R-K-E-R, and I'd be, be thrilled to connect that way, and it's been great speaking with all of you. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you very much. And for our audience, again, you can follow us at the PFL Podcast on Twitter, and check out our website, pflpodcast.com, and you can find us on SoundCloud and Stitcher, too, and iTunes. Thank you. Thank you and so much. Thank you much. very much.